This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Terrell. Hi, I'm Terrell, I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'll pass on a picture for you. Um, what a treat, like 40 minutes to share. I used to drive in like an hour and a half to speak for 10 minutes, so it's kind of a treat. And it feels like a different time zone over here because it's colder as opposed to West Hollywood. It's like still hot. Anyway, let's do the qualify first. Uh, my top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, give or take. Um, the scale stopped weighing me, I don't know. You know, it's like... It said 300 on the dial, so I must have been heavier than 300, or the scale didn't support 300. Either way. And um, I have 30 years of abstinence. So I've been abstinence for a long time. And, and I make it clear right from the very beginning that I'm an opinionated old-timer, and that's just the way it is. So I'm just if I throw out an opinion and you just go like, you know, I didn't see that in the big book, just go, well, that's his opinion, and then you can go on. You have to sit there and do on it and get right a whole inventory and do all that stuff. It's kind of interesting, you know, it's, there's a recession going on, or maybe it's still over with now. But I'm sitting there going, like, listen to, like, I've friends who are off work, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm not financially, I'm not doing as well as I should, I'm not doing well. And so what I did is I uh, did a budget or wrote an inventory. I, actually, I have a bit my own business, so I looked at my QuickBooks, and I tried to dice that so many ways to show that I'm at a loss this year, and it's still not coming up. But if you've listened to my head for the last couple of weeks, you have known that I am about ready to lose everything. And that's what an inventory is about, you know. That's why we put it down on paper. Because, like I said, no matter how I diced it, no matter how I try to look at my financials, it was not coming up negative. So, you know, I guess that's one of the things this program has taught me is just get the hell out of my head. Because that's, that's dangerous territory. Anyway, let's, let me tell you a little bit what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I see a lot of faces here. So, you know, a lot of you know my story. And you'll go, like, you can probably repeat along with some of it. But I will not be offended if you do because I know that I've heard other people's stories for a long time. I come from a dysfunctional family. And let's just be clear, it was, there was a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of um, verbal abuse, uh, physical abuse from my brother, who we used to fight during commercials. And since the fight would stop, we would, you know, watch the TV show. And then since the commercial came, and I'm the baby brother, so I always got beat up on. I made a mistake of telling a friend last week about my childhood. It was like you could see the look on their face going like, oh. Basically, my mother's three husbands killed themselves. So I guess that's like one thing that you kind of go like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that makes it kind of like a kind of crazy childhood. So I always say that I, I had to eat. I had to eat. Because I come from this alcoholic family where literally there was either alcohol addiction, drug addiction, there was um, a compulsive spending, you name it, it was there. I had the ism. 
my family has been trying to get away from themselves for the longest time ever. And since the, the harder they try to get away from themselves, the more they propagate that onto their children. Basically, I discovered food. And I discovered fudgesicles at age four. And I can remember this fudgesicle. It was bought at a dairy. That fudgesicle, when I bit into it, made the world go away. Made life easier. That glow that I got from that fudgesicle, which later turned into donuts because I discovered donuts, I was trying to pursue that glow. And that's the reason why I ate. I am absolutely 100% clear today the reason why I ate. Not when I was doing it. Not when I was binging. I ate because I needed that warm, okay, I can breathe. Because life was hard. Life was difficult. I was in constant fear of you. Constant fear of what you thought of me. And constant fear of being judged. And I knew I was not good enough. And I knew that all you do was scratch the surface and you could see that I was not good enough. So I was in constant state of trying to eat me away. To try to cover up enough of this with enough food so that I could not feel that fear. And if with that much fear, then I had resentment. Because I can't live in that much fear without having that much resentment. That I was angry at myself because I was not good enough. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at the world. But I was very fearful of the world. So by, I learned that by eating, I could just make it disappear. The problem with using food as an escape is that it put me up to 300 plus pounds, and I could not eat 24-7. And I would c- come across a mirror. I'd be, have to live in the social realm. I'd lived in the world, so I wasn't living on a deserted island. And I was teased as Terrell the Barrel in high school, in, you know, in school. I was ostracized by, at school. Maybe not as much as I thought I was, but my own self-isolation, because see, if, if you're a worthless piece... Why would you even bother socializing with people? Because they didn't want to socialize with you. I used to walk around high school with my head down and not looking at you because I knew that if you were seen talking to me at school, that you would therefore be ostracized like me. So I did you the favor of not talking to you. And that's the point that I came into Overs Anonymous. My stepfather berated me one time too many, saying I was a fat-ass kid. I had no friends. I had nothing. All I did was come home and watch TV after school. Why didn't I have a life? My stepfather was an alcoholic. He was an AA. Somehow I found out through them that there was OA. So I went to OA. And at my first meeting, I heard something that I needed to hear more than anything else in the world. And that was this man had said he had lost 100 pounds. And that's what I needed to hear in my first meeting. And what it gave me is one thing I had not had up to that point, and that was hope. That just maybe, just possibly, I didn't have to live like this the rest of my life. That I didn't have to be fat the rest of my life. I had heard or seen stories about, you know, heard girls at school talk about they lose five pounds for it to get in their prom dress. And I'm thinking at 300 plus pounds, five pounds is nothing. Nothing. Why even bother with five when you've got 125 or 150? Why friggin' bother? So, so when I heard someone lose 100 pounds and I believed them, it gave me that hope. Because I had this feeling there was two types of people on this planet. There was thins and there was fats. And occasionally, thin became a fat, but a fat never, ever became a thin. And I heard I'm at 300 plus pounds, so I knew there was absolutely no hope in my world, in my life, that I'd ever have a normal body. So, when I heard that I had a way out, that was your hook. The Overseanomous hook is weight loss. Our hook is not joy, happiness, freedom, spirituality. Our hook is weight loss. The way we stay here is because what we offer 
for the long term. So that's why I know that Overseas works because I heard my first names when I lost 100 pounds. I've seen through my years of experience weight loss. Lots of weight loss. And weight loss has kept off. So that's our hook. So I'm very clear that if all you want to do is lose some weight, you're in the right place. But just make sure you open your ears enough to hear what else we have to say. So I came in, went to my first OA meeting at 17, and got the gray sheet of paper that we had at the time as a suggested food plan. And I lost 125 pounds in about five months on that suggested food plan. Now, remember, I'm a 17-year-old boy. I went from binging to working on a shipping loading dock over the summer, from eating, like, whatever I could get in my mouth that could hide, like ice cream. That, although my binge food of choice in, when I was in high school with my family was dried spaghetti, because no one could count dried spaghetti. So we'd go grab dried spaghetti out of the bag, run in the bathroom, and eat dried spaghetti in the bathroom. And that's where I, that's where I did. So that's the reason why my, my binge food was dried spaghetti. So I took that food plan, and like I said, I lost 100, uh, about 125 pounds. But I didn't need the program. The program was for my sick alcoholic parents. I didn't need to work the fourth step. I couldn't write the fourth step because that was saying you're going to be honest. And, and I knew about honesty. I learned it in my family. You lie about how honest you are. So it was very clear that I, was gonna, I could not do this on this inventory. I could not share this because I had these deep, dark secrets I couldn't share with another living soul. And I knew this is why I was a worthless piece of, you know, that I could not, could not share another living with another human being. This deep, dark secret that caused so much shame in my life and one of the reasons I had to eat. And so I couldn't share that. And you folks talked about God, and I, I was raised a Southern Baptist, and I knew about God. Um, I had a two-year pin because I went to Sunday school two years in a row without missing a Sunday. I, I used to pray to God, God, please, please, when I wake up, let me be thin. God, please, please, when I wake up, let my parents stop drinking and fighting. And my parents kept drinking and fighting, and I wake up the same way that I went to bed as. And I got the deal with God. I understood about God because if God was all-powerful, omnipotent. So if, if here I am at 300 plus pounds, and I'm asking God for to relieve this of me, to take this away from me, well then, this must be God's punishment to me. And that's the reason why I weigh 300 plus pounds. Because it's my punishment for my horrible thoughts. My horrible thoughts and deeds. Now this is a 17-year-old boy who's thinking this. I was 17, and I, my life consisted of going to school, coming home, cleaning the house, to maybe if the house was clean, my parents went drink and fight, and then helping my mother eat, clean the dishes afterwards, because that way I can turn the garbage disposal and eat all the food, and then watch TV. That's what my life consisted of most of the time. And that's what I was so horrible afraid of. And that's the reason why God was punishing me, because I was such a horrible person. Which, when I came to my ninth step, or eighth and ninth, there wasn't a whole lot of amends to make to, to other people, because I was so introverted. And also at 17. But I didn't work the steps, and so, like I said, I lost the weight. And I would go to a meeting a week just for moral support, for encouragement. Because it was nice to come to an OA meeting and hear these wonderful stories and get that moral support. But I still didn't work a program. I asked this woman to be my sponsor. She said, she, yes, at, at the beginning of the meeting. During the break, she came and said her sponsor said she's too full and that she cannot sponsor me. And I did not ask another person. Because I know how to deal with rejection. You walk away. And so I literally, after about six, seven months of basically abstaining and losing the weight, I left. And what I had to do is I had to go eat again. When I raised my hand as a compulsive reader, it says that I use food. I use food to take care of my problems. 
I take, use food to take care of Terrell. That I use food to make the world go away. Now, since I didn't work the program the first time around, I still had the same reasons that I was eating the first time. I had every reason to eat. All I had stopped eating was for five months. I did not work with the causes. So I had to go out and binge again. And I did. I went out and ate, and I got back up to about 250 pounds. So I put in about 75 pounds. And I just kept a journal at that time, and it literally would say, in the upper right-hand corner would be the date, and upper left-hand corner would be my weight. Because that was just as important as the date, and it was determined how my, how my day was going to be. When I'm in my disease, I'm very weight-obsessed. I always jokingly say, but it's really the truth, that I wish I could find a scale to weigh me in grams, because an ounce is too big of a measurement. I need to know how many grams of weight I lost. Because that's how, I, that's how focused I get on that magic number. Because, see, in my head, there's a magic number. That once I reach that magic number, then everything will be okay. And then I can go, life is good again because I'm at this number. And I've learned there is no magic number. There is no magic number. I've been thinner than this. I've been heavier than this. Um, I've got down to like 165 pounds. There is no magic number. Because as long as i got this head, this head will use that magic number. Either an excuse to eat or an excuse to eat. <laughs> you know, it's either because, oh, my God, I'm like thin and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God, you know, I can go eat extra food. Uh, oh, my God, I'm so fat. Look, I'm so fat. Same number. I'm so fat. What's the sense of it? So I, I can eat. So there is no magic number. Anyway, I dealt with that deep, dark secret. And this is very much a part of my story. And what it is, I came out of the closet. Because I was eating over my sexuality. And I'm very, I believe very strongly that everyone in this room somehow ate over their sexuality. And when I say sexuality, it has nothing to do with gay, straight, or anything. It has to do with body image, sexuality, self-esteem, all that kind of stuff that gets rolled around into when we start talking about sexual relationships. That we all just kind of go, well, I was going to say we all, but I know that I kind of went like, can't deal with that, you know. And so when I came out of the closet, it was one less thing to eat over. And you folks told me I'm as sick as my secrets. And so when I was no longer carrying that secret, and I no longer had the shame, I didn't have to eat over the shame of that anymore. And that's one of the reasons I ate. I eat over shame. Because I can go into shame spiral very quickly. That's just that's, that's the way I was wired, that I can go into shame. What this program teaches me is not to go into that shame spiral. So what happened was, I discovered the wonderful world of fasting. And you folks actually kind of told this to me. You, you didn't teach it to me, but you said, Terrell, it's not the hundredth bite that puts the weight on, it's the first. So I learned not to take the first bite all day long. So I would go all day long and not eat, or maybe have a salad. But I knew that once I started, there was no finishing it. That I, once I took that first bite, whether it was a donut or whatever, once I started that bite, I knew I was off and running, so I just didn't eat. Just don't eat. Because you know what? If you eat, literally, the cat's out of the bag. And I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to fight like hell to try to stop eating. And so I got down to, like I said, about 160 pounds. And I call it my donut diet. Because what I did is I would not eat anything all day long except I would maybe, maybe like say, a salad or a very, very moderate, moderate small meal. And then I'd have nine or ten donuts on the way home from the discotheque. Because I would go out dancing, and it was like in the mid-70s, and I would have to deal with all that rejection that I felt from every guy there, and all the self-hatred. I would stand in a crowded discotheque with maybe four, five, six hundred people, stand in the corner of a crowded discotheque, being afraid to move my little finger. 
because that's how self-centered I was, because I knew that someone's going to walk up to me and say, fat boy, what are you doing here? Look at you, you're too fat and you're too ugly, go home. You don't belong here. Now, that is 40 pounds less than I weigh now, probably. You know, and my looks have not changed dramatically. I've matured. But, so that's where my head goes. What happened was I maintained my weight at 160 pounds. And I want to really bless the newcomers because this one newcomer came up to me after I shared this and said, well, if the donut diet was working, why did you stop it? <laughs> I will be very clear the reason why I stopped. I was insane. I was insane. Like I said, afraid to move my little finger in a crowded, dark discotheque. That's what a donut diet got me. That's what a certain food plan got me. So what brought me back to program the second time around is I was told by an eye doctor, I'm not to tell you the long verses, I got the time. He said, Terrell, I was trying to get my prescription. He could not get it hammered down after several weeks and several visits. He just could not get that prescription to hammer down. It was constantly changing. So he said, Terrell, is there a history of hypoglycemia or diabetes in your family? And the answer was yes, because my grandmother died from the disease because they were taking her body parts, you know. Well, they're taking her body parts, she still has hard candy in her bed. So you think after they take the toe or the foot that you would stop eating hard candy. But they took the leg, and she's still eating hard candy. When they took her other leg, that's when she died. Now, I cannot say that my grandmother is a compulsive reader. Only she could say that. But by God, if they're taking her body parts, you would think that you would stop eating hard candy. And that's in our big book. It says that we think that someday, one day, we'll wake up from that lethargy. And we'll go like, oh, right, what was I thinking? That I, that put weight on. Well, I shouldn't eat nine or ten donuts. That's putting weight on. But since I don't, when I'm eating my donuts, it's not because, oh, this is nutrition feeding my body. It's like an engine, a fuel furnace. And if I put more calories in than I need, then I wait, you know, store the calories. I don't think that. I'm thinking like, I need it. I need it. I need it now. And I need, to re- I, need, I need to breathe. I need to breathe. And that's where food takes me, so that I need to breathe. Because I knew that any second, any one of you could snatch my breath away. And that's where food takes me. In the constant fear that any second, any one of you can snatch my breath away. And take my soul and my life. With one look. Just one look. That's, that's what a binge gets to me. So he said, he, when I said yes, he said um, a simple little question. He said, Terrell, are you eating sugar? Because a true compulsive behavior, when they, when they ask you about your food and your binging, you do one thing and one thing only. You lie. And I said a little. <laughs> and I want to be clear, because you've heard me talk about this, because a lot of sugar is a three-pound box of seeds candy. A little sugar... It's when you don't do the chemistry set. Like, when I eat, like, lots of candy, lots of chocolate, I have to go in that chemistry set mode where i got to get enough protein in me to balance out the sugar because I get, I get, I get too amped up with the sugar and I get too like this. So i got to throw something in there. Like, i got to throw some protein to bring me down so I can eat more sugar because i got to eat more sugar because i got the compulsion, the addiction kicking in that i just got to get more sugar. And if I, I can't eat that much sugar without getting more stuff in there. And that's why, I'm a, that's why donuts is my thing. Because donuts literally is... It's a, a sugar which brings me up. It's, it amps me up. And then I mix it with wheat or bread, which when I eat bread, I just become very lethargic. I just get tired. I just need to take a nap. So what I do is I take sugar and I take flour, mix it together, throw it in some hot grease, and then pull it out and put some more of the sugar on top of it. And it hits me at this point where I go, hmm. Hmm. I'm not too active, not too... 
in drug terminology, this is called a speedball, which is basically where you take speed and heroin and mix it together and shoot it up. And the first time I heard this, before I got the connection what I was doing, I said, why would you do that? That kind of balances each other. He says, well, no, it kind of keeps you level. And that's what donuts did. It kept me level, even. So he said, Terrell, if you do not stop eating sugar, be blind within a year. I then went to Europe and put on 30 pounds in six weeks, binging my way through Europe. Now, binging my way through Europe, I was, I stuffed my face, I was going, I can still see. When things start to go great, that's when I'll stop. So that's where I always must remember where food will take me, where that binge will take me, where I'm willing to sacrifice my eyesight for one more bite of chocolate. One more bite of chocolate. But I need, I need a second bite because I, that, the first bite wore, that wore, wore off. And then the third bite comes because I just got to feed the addiction. Because then I'm no longer feeding the hunger. I'm feeding the addiction. And the doctor's opinion says we feed the addiction. It has nothing to do with the craving or just, you know, it's just basically the addiction's kicked in. Now, this also reminds me a reason why I know that I don't have a whole lot of power what I speak that what I can say up here doesn't make a whole lot of difference because it's what you hear. Because this, this person came up to me uh, several years ago and said, Charles, I really want to thank you. And I said, why? He says, well, because I was in Europe and I kept thinking, if Terrell can abstain in Europe, I can abstain in Europe. If Terrell can abstain in Europe, I can abstain in Europe. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that I binged my way through Europe. But that's where I know that I get to come up here, tell my story, talk about, you know, program, and you get to hear whatever you do. Because you're up, and I sit out there, and your brain going goes like, oh, yeah, and then blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, so, you know, if you want to think like, oh, my God, Terrell's staying in Europe, and I, so therefore I can have stayed in Europe. Fine. By the way, I have got, gone back to Europe several times, and I've stayed in Europe several times. But when this, when this was story was told, this is not the case. Um, so, yes, you can have stayed in Europe, and it's wonderful times. And so I came back to Los Angeles from Europe, and I, I needed to dry up, because I tried to kick sugar in, your, in, a, in a plaza in Vienna, and I got sick. And I said, I cannot stop eating. Please help me. That was the first step. And then, I don't know if I was talking to God, I was just saying I could not stop eating. I believe that God was merciful, or that knew that somehow, somehow I knew it was not to be done, done alone. So I bit, continued binging with the West of my way through Europe. When I came back, I called my sister who was in OA at the time, and I said, um, I need to dry out. I need to cook sugar. Can I come stay with you? And she said, no, I have company this weekend, but I will take you to a meeting on Sunday. And I said, okay. So what I knew from my previous experience of my alcoholic parents being in AA and with my uh, being in OA before, is I got the big book, and I started in the big book. And I read the big book, and was cover to cover until it was time to go to that meeting on Sunday. I went to my first meeting, and my first meeting was in Orange County, and this guy caught, I mean, he said he was a moderate mealer. Oh, damn it, there went one excuse why I couldn't come back to OA. See, I had all these excuses why I couldn't come back to OA. I couldn't do the gray sheet again. I, you know, I'm gay. I'm male. I, I had all these excuses. The reason why OA was not right for me. And then, once you know it, my first meeting, there was a moderate mealer talking about he's not doing the gray sheet. Then I found out there was like six meetings a week at the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. So there went that excuse. <laughs> It's like, literally what happened was, I believe that I ate up all my excuses. And I became more willing to listen to what you folks had to say. So, I came back to Wisnomas, and I was going to six other meetings a week. I became an active member of OA. I sponsored, I was sponsoring. I mean, I literally was going to 
most of my nights consist of meetings and fellowship. And I lost that 30 pounds that I gained, or 25, 30 pounds I gained in Europe. And I went to my sponsor and said, you know, I'm sick and tired of going to these rooms full of fat-ass people. I'm sick and tired of listening to their problems. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot eat. On a Friday night, I would be out dancing with the boys in Palm Springs, and you would be sitting in some damn meeting in Cedar sinai Hospital. And because I was done with you, I was done with you. Because I don't want to be you. You're not fun, you're not hip, you're not slick, you're not cool. And believe me, those alcoholics, I've seen them on the street too in the gutter, they're not hip, slick, and cool either. So the, the bottom line is, I don't want to admit one more time that I had this disease. So my sponsor said some magic words to me. He said, remember, Terrell, you're leaving us, we're not leaving you. And if you ever want to come back, we'll be here. I remember thinking, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> you know, because I was done with you. I was done with you. The thing is, you were not done with me. See, I was at the last house in the block, and I didn't want to not, I didn't want to be in the last house in the block, and I tried to go back. So what happened was on January 5th, 1979, I wound up breaking that abstinence. It was on two pieces of toast. And that's my last binge. I told you I'm hopelessly addicted to wheat and flour. So if I two pieces of toast, it would break in my absence. Because when I break that, broke that absence, I knew what I had to do. I had to, go get, I had to go get more donuts. I had to get my donuts. And it was a new donut stand, and it was pink, and it had that warm glow that comes out pink donut stands. And I knew the little woman behind there would love me as much as my grandmother ever loved me. And that's where my head goes with donuts. And so that's the reason why I, was, I got scared. Because you folks said the door will always swing out. But we never know if the door will swing back in. So one more time, the door swung out, and I got scared because I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. So I, I, I started praying. I said, God, please help me. I cannot do this one more time. I cannot do it one more time. Please help me. And so I went to bed, and then the next morning, January 6, 1979, I got up, and I've been absent ever since. Now, that prayer had nothing to do with weight. Had nothing to do with weight. It had totally to do with I could not live with the brain that comes with the binge. That brain that comes without being without you folks and without working a 12-step program. That's the reason why I was so scared. See, I, I had my donut diet. I could keep my weight down at 160 pounds on the donut diet. You know, one thing I see a lot of recently that's kind of this new trend in OA, and what, maybe it's just me seeing it and hearing babies talk about it, is this thing of trying to find that perfect food plan. I'm going to get that perfect food plan. See, if I can just get that perfect food plan, then everything will be okay. And to me, that's like looking for the perfect diet. If I can just get that perfect diet, then everything will be fine. Then I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I got because I got the perfect diet. And we don't say there's a perfect food plan. We say be honest with your food. Be honest. Because I can't eat flour. You might. You might not. I sponsor guys who eat pasta. You know, so it's like one of those things where it's like, it's not, we're not teetotalers. Our literature tells us we're not teetotalers. We cannot go around saying, oh, sugar's the, you know, the devil's thing, the devil's food. We can't do that because it might work for you. Sugar might work for you. But Lord knows, I mean, every time I talk about it, I don't eat bread and I've been for 30 years. I get people coming up afterwards and going like, I might have a problem with bread. <laughs> and, and I'm going to tell you right now, so you have to come up and ask, after and ask me and going like, okay, here's the test you do. You make lunch. You take your lunch. And it's with, like, tuna salad and vegetables and, you know, some, like, a same lunch, like lunch vegetables and some raw vegetables and stuff like that. And see how you feel afterwards. The next day, put that tuna salad between two slices of bread. 
and see how you feel. If the next day after lunch you go, that just wasn't enough. You know what? Maybe it just wasn't enough lunch. You might have a problem with bread. Just might. So that's how we, that's what this program tells us is you've got to find out on your own. It says in our literature we have to go try controlled eating. If you think you can handle it, try some controlled bread consumption. Seriously, if you think you can handle sugar, try some controlled sugar. Take a bite of a chocolate bar. Put it down. Walk away. Or leave it on the table and have a conversation with someone in front of you. And see, this morning I heard the most crazy asinine thing in the world. The speaker this morning was talking about how his friends were going to go split a donut. I'm going to split a donut. You never split a donut. Maybe you split a baker's dozen. I get seven, you get six. Maybe. So anyway... Let's see, where was I? <laughs> I go off on this tangent. So, basically, I came back to Reason Anonymous. Now, it's been a hell of a ride. I'm 54. 30 years abstinent. So, I've been abstinent more than half my life. I mean, I, anything and everything that you could possibly imagine, I've had to walk through abstinently. When I hear stories about, like, well, see, it was really hard because I, you know, saw a death or sick or whatever... You know, I'm going like, that's what the steps are for. The steps are there not just because, oh, life is easy, it's because I can work, so I can work the steps, and the steps are good. The steps are there when life goes really in hell in a handbasket. When life is good, it's like, oh, yeah, just coasting and selling. It's kind of still in the steps, but when life goes bad, that's when we work the steps. That's when we work the tools. Because believe me, I know what it's like to walk around shaking your hands, pacing the floor when it eats so bad you can taste it. You just shake your hands and walk. And say, okay, right now I'm not going to eat. Right now I'm not going to eat. Right now I'm not going to eat. Call it white knuckling. I don't care, but you've got to white knuckle maybe to get to the point where you're spiritual again. Because that's when I get to that spiritual point where I go like, okay, I don't care whether there's talk right here. But if I see talk and I just want it so bad, because once I take that first bite, I'm lost. I kind of look at my, I kind of look at my absence as this, this cord or this rope that's in a dark cave. And so basically... I'm trying to find the light out, and if I'm, if I'm binging, well, if I'm absent, I've got this cord that lets me out of that dark cave. It shows me the way out. But if I let go of the absence or let go of the rope, I'm lost in that dark cave. And that's why I don't let go of that rope. Because they told me when I came in, either you're going to walk through the fire tonight or walk through the fire in the morning. But sooner or later, you've got to walk through the fire. Sooner or later, all that stuff that we ate over, we have to face. If we don't face it, we will go binge again. And if you're like a, me, a compulsive overeater, binging is a horrible option. Now, I believe you can be 30 pounds overweight and not a compulsive overeater because it doesn't debilitate you. But when I binge, when I eat, I hate myself. I hate myself. That I don't want to be around you because I know how much I hate, how horrible I am. Someone who's 30 pounds overweight and they eat and they're not having any issues, they're just like, oh yeah, I just didn't really didn't learn to eat well and, you know, I got bad habits and sedentary life and so forth, you know, I guess I should lose some weight, you know. That's like, okay, what? 30 pounds overweight, I'm, I got, I'm dying here. I'm dying here at 30 pounds overweight. So that's why it's not how much, it's what it does to us. Life has been truly blessed in many ways. Now, in all this time, there's been several times when life is ups and downs. Just to throw, like, some things out there so you go, like, oh, yeah, he doesn't know what it's like. Well, let's see, I, my sister died in 2000 when I was, what, um, nine years ago. So I was about 21 years absent. 
That was one of the worst years of my life. Moved to Colorado for three months, worst thing you could possibly do, but I went for a 401k and stock options. So I got security in my life, which the company went bankrupt a year later. But that's where I've learned how to, we've got security. Yeah, I'm going to put security in man-made things. I've learned to put security in God. I've learned to put security in the right place. Something won't, won't fail me. Here's another one of my opinions. This program never promised you a husband, a wife, a job, a car. It never promised you anything financially. It promised you nothing physical except your goal weight or whatever your normal weight is. What it promises is serenity, sanity, and freedom. That's what we promise. So if you're sitting there going like, well, life is really crappy because, you know, blah, 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 and I'm working the program and it's really not paying off. God is not a slot machine. You don't put enough prayers in there and crank the handle, put up another prayer and crank the handle, sooner or later it's jackpot. <laughs> what it is is we become comfortable in our own skin, regardless of what happens. One of my favorite things is, a sign of someone's spirituality is not what happens to them, it's how they react to what happens to them. So life will throw curves at you. If you're like me, the first year wasn't a fog. Second year is the most god-awful relationship in the world. Cut my hand trying to grab the knife away from him because he was going to slice the sofa. Second year accident. Didn't binge, didn't eat. Now you put on a couple pounds, but didn't, didn't binge, didn't eat. And I got through that relationship, left his ass, you know. Because <laughs> I had to go sort of through that. And I always say, I jokingly say, God, if you want a relationship in your first year of absence, go ahead, baby, I understand. I love high drama, too. I do. I do. But, but as, you know, and here comes my other opinion, which you know, you, you all love me for this, but I believe it's so true. You're a newcomer until you get 10 years of abstinence. Because it takes 10 years of day in, day out, back-to-back abstinence. Now, granted, if you've got 10 years in program, 10 years of recovery, you will get some relief. But maybe by shortchanging your abstinence, by not by going and abstaining for a week or abstaining for a couple of months, and then, that's too hard, I'm going to back away. Then I'm going to go upstate for a couple more months. You will feel better. No doubt about it. But you won't be joyous, happy, and free. You won't be joyous, happy, and free. That's been my experience. We have to work all of the eight tools to get a full, fruitful garden. And so that's why I'm an abstinent thumper. Like, baby, just stay abstinent one more day. Just one more day. Just hang in there one more day. Because you know what the binge is like. You know how horrible that binge is. You know how it tears up your soul. So, okay, I was going to do some things I've been staying through. Um, lost a job when I was about three years absent, moved to Texas. That was a whole trip in itself. Uh, found out I was HIV positive, abstained through that. Back when it was a death sentence. I was, absta- I was diagnosed when it was a death sentence. So I didn't know if I had one week to live, one month to live, one year to live. Um, I had a hip replaced six months ago. So I was in constant pain for the prior year. So, yes, I'm in constant pain. Like I, was got to where I could go the, went to the grocery store, and then I had to go home and go to bed. Because it was just, I just had to rest. So I, there's been a lot. So if you want to say, yeah, but you don't understand. No, I do understand. I understand how binging kills the spirit and kills the soul. And I understand how abstaining and working the 12 steps frees us from the bondage of self. That self that makes that small self where we say, I'm less than. How I don't fit in, how I don't belong. And that's why we abstain. The benefit is when we abstain, when we are working the steps, we don't want to overeat. That's the joy and beauty of this program. The steps doesn't talk about food except for one word. But what it is, it just makes us comfortable in our own skin. So I'm going to go to food to go, okay, I can breathe now. I got my food. 
What this program has taught me is it taught me that I can now, without food, go, life's good. Life's good. Not maybe the way I want to take it, make it look like. Maybe it's not, you know, what I think it should be. But right here, right now, life is good. And that's why I abstain. Thanks for letting me share. Have questions? questions, I guess. we got five minutes for questions. How did I or how do I? Well, it's changed over many, many years. Right now, I have a very hard time with God. I, I wish you'd be the spiritual speaker and I used to talk to a lot about God. Very much a lot about God. And, uh, I mean, people always say, Gerald is a spiritual speaker. Get Gerald for the Sunday, Sunday closing because he's a spiritual speaker. I now might be borderline atheist, which might be hard to believe in this program. But it's okay. I now know about a higher self. I believe that. If so, if you're having a problem with God, try for the years and still have this trouble with God. But, you know, all I know is if I follow the steps and say, you're willing your way in my life, God, which maybe means turning my life over to a higher self. I meditate on my breath because it, it, I've read all the scientific materials that says that if you meditate, you become more sane and serene and become more productive. Well, sign me up for that. I want sanity, serenity, and more productive. So it's not a God, serenity, medita- or meditation, but I know that there's something greater than me. There's some force in this room. The steps are greater than me. Because when I tried to lose weight and tried to develop self-esteem on my own, I failed miserably. I gained more weight and I hated myself more. But somehow when I turned my life over to this program and tried to live my life based upon the 12 steps and 12 traditions and work the eight tools... Life is good, and I don't, I don't feel like I'm fighting life. So I think that's where I get my serenity and sanity. So when I find that conscious contact with the power greater than myself, maybe it's my higher self. Maybe it's the room. Maybe it's getting like reminding me, like, oh, right, do you want to be right or you can be right or you can be happy? Is this important? How important is this to your essence? It gets me back in touch with the principles that I've learned after all these years. And that's where I go with meditation. Now, many times throughout the past years, I've spent... 30 minutes of meditation, I've looked and done a lot of prayer meditation. I've done a lot of spiritual seeking. This might be a phase I'm going through because my life has been full of phases of different gods. And so this might be a phase. And often next month, it might be different. What screwed me over a lot, and this is my own personal story, was the last couple past elections when I heard a lot of God being bandied about. Before, there wasn't that whole lot about God. And now I'm seeing this word God, and I'm saying, well, God's will, and I've got turned over to God, and I'm going like, but this is the God that like, people flew into buildings for. This is the God that people... So, and I know that that's not the God, but it just kind of felt dirty. And I heard in elections, like, oh, God's on our side and wants us to win this election. And I'm going like, that felt dirty. So I had to pull away, and I'm pulling away. But that's okay. I still believe there's a power greater. I still believe there's something. I just can't tell you what it is. And so that might give comfort and solace to some people in this room. Because if you don't have to figure out what it is, just know there's something. God knows what it is, but there's something. And I believe it's the tenets of this program. That if I live my life based upon the tenets of this program, it will get better. I think that's all I Okay, time's up. You can ask me afterwards.